Glad you braved the weather. I'm glad the rain stopped a little early for us. I, I, uh, as I was driving in, it was quite a downpour, so I was glad that it stopped. But it's good to see you guys again. Um, blessed to have people with us literally from all over the world. How exciting that is anytime we get to experience that. Um, as I preach today, I want you to remember those pictures that you saw and the words that you heard Dr. Joy share with us because I think that their life has preached the message that I'm about to preach. Like they are living what I'm about to talk about. So I want you to think about what you saw and what you heard as you hear me share these words with you this morning. Well, Bob met Mary Mona in 1946 in the Caribbean when he was stationed there in the U.S. Navy uh, there at the end of World War II. And uh, Bob and Mary Mona got married a year later, and Mary Mona moved to the U.S. to be with, with Bob. After the birth of their first child the following year, a little girl, Bob enrolled at Letourneau University to study engineering, and they moved to Longview, Texas. Oh yeah, that's right, you, you went there, that's right. So shortly after arriving in Longview, a neighbor of theirs invited Bob and Mary Mona to attend a good old-fashioned Baptist revival. Some of you know what those are. If you don't, ask somebody else. But uh, they, did, they, they got invited to go to this revival, and uh, Bob declined the invitation. He said, forget that. I go to church when I want to go to church. I'm going fishing. And, but Mary Mona decided to go ahead and accept this invitation to attend the revival with their friends. And that night... On a Sunday night in 1949, Mary Mona met Jesus and trusted him as Lord and Savior. Well, she went home and she went and told Bob about how great this revival service was, how she had met Jesus, how engaging, how funny this pastor was, and Bob was upset. He didn't want his wife being smitten over any other man, and so he vowed that he would return the very next night to give this preacher a pounding. God had something altogether different in store because that Monday night, the very night after Mary Mona came to know the Lord, Bob came to know Jesus and trusted him as Lord and Savior. Two years later, he was ordained for ministry and began pastoring shortly thereafter. They, had, they went on to have two more little boys and then another little girl, and God moved their family to Kingsville in South Texas and then Corpus Christi where Bob served as the pastor of Gardendale Baptist Church for 20 years from 1967 to 1987. And during the course of his ministry throughout his life, Bob had the privilege of watching over 3,000 people place their faith in Jesus and follow him in baptism. And he also had the privilege of ordaining over 50 men for Christian ministry. One of those men was his youngest son, Bob and Mary Mona were married for 56 years when Bob went home to be with Jesus in December of 2003. Just this February, Mary Mona celebrated her 90th birthday, and she and two of their four children are still walking with Jesus today. If you were to interview Mary Mona, what she would say is that she and Bob experienced 56 years of satisfying marriage. The question is, 
What made their marriage satisfying? I believe that the secret to their satisfaction was that Bob and Mary Mona lived on mission together in their marriage. They knew exactly who God was calling them to be and what he was calling them to do, and they actually did it together. They engaged in the mission. And what I want to suggest to you today is that we all hunger for this. God has hardwired into every marriage a desire to be with one another and to do something that we cannot do alone, to do something that we have to rely on one another and do together. God brings us together in marriage for mission. And if we're going to be fully satisfied in our marriages, it's not found by finally getting your wife to be the person you want her to be or fixing your husband to be the person you want him to be. It is found in knowing and playing your part in God's mission for marriage. But how can you play your part in God's mission for marriage? How can you engage in what God wants to do in and through you as a couple? If you have a Bible, let's look at Genesis together. We're going to be in the very first book of the Bible, in the very first chapter, Genesis 1. And we're going to look at Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And then we'll flip over to chapter 2 and look at verses 18 through 25. And as we look at these verses today, we're going to see what God's mission for marriage is, as well as how we can play our part in that mission. So what I want to do real quick before we start uh, reading this is I want to pray for our time together. And then as we often do, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read out of a reverence for the fact that this is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we get to come and be together this morning and exalt you, our risen, resurrected Savior. We, we, we thank you that Jesus has made it possible for us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection. And we also thank you for your word. We thank you that you have communicated to us who you are, who we are, and how we can know you and best live out this life for your glory. And I pray, Lord, as that pertains to marriage, that today you would give us clarity on what marriage is and why you created it. And also, Father, that you would give us a heart, a passion, a motivation to play our parts in the mission that you've given us in marriage. I pray that you would be with us, that your spirit would come and dwell in this place, that you would speak through me. I pray that you would uh, take this time and let it be a, a, a few minutes where you come and you are with us in a special way, and your truth speaks to our hearts in a special way. We give this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together as we read this. We're going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 31, and then we'll flip to chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. In Genesis 1, 26, we read this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, 
and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now jump down to verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man shall, should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, you can take a seat. So we read a lot of stuff there. There's a lot that we could talk about here. We don't have an endless amount of time, so we're going to just, I want to point out a few things as we look at these, pass- these two passages today. And the first thing I want to point out is that throughout all of these, these verses, one thing that is unmistakably clear is that God is the one who creates man and woman Just like everything else in existence, God creates humans, but not only that, God creates marriage. He brings man and woman together in marriage. It is God's doing from start to finish. And I want to point out a few things that that help us know that. The first thing is that marriage is God's design. In Genesis 1 and 27 and 28, we saw that God created man, and he created them male and female. And then in Genesis 2, 18, God declares, this is kind of explaining how he he brought them together. He declares that it's not good for Adam to be alone, and so he says, I will make a helper fit for him. I will do this. And then God causes Adam to fall asleep. So God is the first anesthesiologist. And then he takes one of Adam's ribs, and he makes Eve out of that rib. And then we see this beautiful beautiful phrase. It says that he brings her to Adam. So in one sense, you could argue that God was the first father to walk his daughter down the aisle and give his daughter away in marriage. And what we see throughout all of this is this is God's work. And then in verse 23 of chapter 2, we read Adam's response. This is what Adam has to say. He says, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now on the surface, you might 
think that Adam is simply saying, finally, another human, after naming all of those birds, all of those animals, he was surely glad to lay his eyes on another human made in his, like him. But I think there's more going on here. When we read this morning's Old Testament reading, when Christine read that for you, I was kind of imagining that most of us would probably be like, what in the world does this verse have to do with marriage? I want to I explain why I think there's more going on here in light of that passage. So in 2 Samuel chapter 2, I'm, I'm sorry, ch- chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, this is what we read. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Okay, and then focus on this verse. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So when these guys come and they say to David, these elders of the tribes of Israel, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. When they come and say that, they're not saying that we're part of your family, that we're, we're your kin. What they're saying is, basically, we are yours. We are committed to you, you. And that's why they go into this whole thing, spiel about how even when Saul was king, it was really you who were leading and guiding us. And then in verse 3, we read that really interesting phrase. It says, so they came to the king, and King David made a covenant with them. This bone and flesh language is covenant language. In essence, what Adam is saying when he says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's performing the first wedding vow. He's saying, I am yours, and you are mine. I give myself to you. We are united together. Now, this may sound like Adam is coming up with the idea of marriage, but that's not true. In verse 24, back in, back in Genesis 2, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This isn't Adam speaking. This is the writer of Genesis speaking. But over in Matthew 19... Jesus himself says some words about this passage. Jesus says this. In verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, the one who created said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So God is the one who spoke marriage into existence. He's the one who said, Genesis 2, 24. He's the one who said, what has happened right here with this man and this woman is the pattern that I want to lay down, that I am laying down for all of humanity. This is how I want my people to live in such a way that honors me. And then in verse 6, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is in Matthew 19. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So 
what we see here is that God speaks the marriage covenant into existence, but then he also joins man and woman in marriage together. It says, like Jesus, what we just read is Jesus' word said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So God creates man and woman. He brings Eve to Adam. He has Adam make this covenant with Eve, and then we read in Jesus' words that that was God's plan. That was his speaking, and then he brings them together in one flesh. What we see in all of this is God is the one who is under the spotlight. He is the one actively bringing man and woman together in marriage. It is his doing from start to finish. His creation. But why did he do this? Why did God choose to go about having humanity relate to one another in this way? Go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 26. It says, in that passage, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created us in his image. He didn't make anything else in the whole creation story in his image. Nothing else gets that that title. Other than the stuff we read in Genesis 1, if we were to read through it. He makes humans in his image. And what that means is that he gives us the capacity to know him and the ability to have a relationship with him. It means more than that, but at the very least, it at least means that. But what what I want to also point out is that male and female together are the image of God. Both male and female together are made in God's image, in his likeness. And I want to show you how, how I believe that that is. One of the things that we know about God that is foundational, it is one of the most important truths about who God is, is that God is triune, that he is a trinity. He is one God in three persons. There is one eternal God, one being, one essence, but he is three persons. There's Father, there's Son, and there is Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet there is only one God. And one way that theologians have talked about this mystery of their, their being three in one is that God has unity in diversity. You've probably heard that phrase before. Unity in diversity. And one of the ways that we reflect God's image, one of the ways that we're created in his image, is that he didn't just create one gender. He didn't just create all males. He created male and female. And we are diverse. We're different. There is no denying that males and females are different. Everybody who's married attests to that. You raise your hand real quick. So God created us, man and woman, And then what he does is he brings us together in marriage, taking that diversity and combining it into unity, and he makes us one flesh. And so the big idea for us to take away from this is that God creates us, man and woman, and he brings us together in marriage to be a picture of who he is. To be a picture of who he is. As we live and go about our lives on this earth, 
in marriage, male and female, husband and wife, yet one, we are a little bit of a image of who God is. We are a reflection of his character, his nature. And so the first thing that we can do to play our parts in God's mission for marriage is to demonstrate and celebrate who God is together. To demonstrate and celebrate who God is together. Now, how do we demonstrate who God is? On the first hand, when you think back to unity and diversity, it's pretty easy to demonstrate diversity. As long as in your marriage there's one male and one, one female, you've got that part down. You're demonstrating the diversity. Now, to demonstrate the unity, we do that by becoming one flesh, and that is much more than just a physical, sexual thing. That is an emotional, relational, spiritual. It is a complete thing. It involves being one together in all things. It means that we truly value our spouse and we love them as much as we love ourselves, putting their needs ahead of our own. And that is how we demonstrate God's unity when we are together, when we are a unified front before our friends, before our family, before the world. But how do we celebrate who God is together? So we demonstrate who he is by being male and female. That's the diversity part. Being united as one flesh. Being together in all things. That's the unity part. But how do we celebrate this? How do we go about our lives in such a way where we rejoice in the fact that we are made in God's image, male and female, but together? We do that by respecting one another as made in the image of God. Now, I, I, I know some of you better than others, but one of the things that I know that's pretty common when it comes to marriage is that God makes, brings together two people who are pretty radically different. I'm getting a few snickers. What happens in marriage is you often have one person who's the loud, crazy, boisterous one in my marriage. You can probably guess who that is. And then you have the more quiet, subdued one. You have the really logical and brainy and kind of like just thinks of everything in a vacuum person, and then the one who's like squirrel and runs by their emotions, right? A lot of times we see differences in our personalities. Not always. Sometimes you're a little bit more alike, but a lot of times we're different. One of the ways that we celebrate who God is in marriage is that if we're the loud one and our spouse is the quiet one, we don't get all worked up and weirded out by that. We just respect that they're different than us. And we, and we thank God that he gave us a partner that is so unlike us and how beautiful that is that we're not married to ourself. Okay, that just came out weird. <laughs> so we, be, we begin celebrating who God is in our marriage by respecting who the other person is, respecting that they're made in God's image and even though they're different than us, they're not less than. The second way that I believe we can celebrate who God is in our marriages by not, is by not expecting our spouse to be like us. I think that's one of the core problems in a lot of marriages is we try to manipulate the other person and we try to, think, we try to make them roll the toilet paper the way that we want it rolled. We try to make them squeeze the toothpaste the way we like it squeezed. We try to, those are the silly examples, but we try to get them to manage money and to manage their time, to go to bed at the same time as us and get up at the same time as us. We try to get them to do everything the way that we want it done rather than understanding that God created them different. 
And he didn't create us better and our spouse worse. He created us different. And we celebrate that when we don't try to manipulate our partner into being like us, but rejoicing in the fact that they're different and learning to thank God for that gift, even if it drives us crazy sometimes. So God created man and woman, and he brings us together in marriage as a picture of who he is. And the way that we play our part in God's mission for marriage, the first way, is that we demonstrate and celebrate who God is together. Now the second thing I want to talk about is that marriage is not only God's doing, it is also for his glory. Marriage is also something that he created to bring worship unto him, to bring praise and honor unto who he is. In Ephesians 5, the New Testament reading that Mikkel read for us earlier, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he gives this really interesting commentary on marriage. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, we know that Jesus humbly left heaven to come to this messy world that we live in. And then he spent his entire life pouring himself out, loving everyone he ever came in contact with. Ultimately, doing the most loving thing anybody has done in all of human history, laying down his very life. His body was broken, his blood was spilt. And then three days later, after being buried, God raised him from the grave. And from there, what God has done is he has made it possible for people to be forgiven, to know him, and be made new, to become new creations. And so what Jesus has done is he has not only made people new by his life, death, and resurrection. He has also brought us together. Anybody who has placed their faith in Christ, he has brought us together in the church. And so what we see is that Christ gave his very life to start a new community of people, people who had full access to God the Father and were brought together, unified in Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And God patterns my marriage, your marriage, every marriage after Christ in the church. And so what we take from this is that God has designed marriage to put the covenant relationship of Christ and the church on display. That should intimidate us a little bit. Think about that. I mean, that's a pretty big mantle to lay on my shoulders and your shoulders. That God wants me and Lexi, he wants you and your spouse to be a living, breathing display of how Christ has covenanted with the church, how he loves us perfectly. Now, we know that we don't do that perfectly, but that's what God's desire is. And thank God for the gospel that it even covers our marital sin. It even covers the ways that we fail and mess up miserably in this context. But it doesn't change the fact that what God wants, what he has ordained, is that our marriages be this living display of Christ and the church. That is why marriage is so sacred. That is why God cares so much 
about how we treat one another, how we covenant together, and how we keep those covenants. But how do we play our part in God's mission for marriage in regards to this reality that we're called to display Christ and the church? I believe we do that as we display the grace of the gospel together. Those of us who are in Jesus, those of us who have, of us who have trusted in him, we have been given the gracious gift of forgiveness and redemption by faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And our marriages are the primary avenue, the primary avenue by which we are called to turn around and give the very grace that we've received by God to another person. Marriage is the first way that God desires for us to live out the grace that we've received. And husbands, we do this primarily in our marriage by laying our life down for our wives as Christ laid his life down for us. That means that we give up our time, we give up our preferences, we give up our agendas, we give up our will, everything that we want. We give that up, we surrender it for the, case, for the sake of our wives. And wives, it means that we're called to honor and respect our husbands, recognizing that God has called you to be the primary person in their life to support them, to encourage them, to be there for them, not to berate and belittle, but to encourage, to lift up, to say, you can do this. I know that it's hard, but you can do this. But it also means that we forgive one another. Because forgiveness is one of the things that's the very heart of the gospel, right? In the gospel, God is forgiving us based on what Jesus did on our behalf. And in our marriages, what God desires for us is to exhibit the same forgiveness we've received. So rather than keeping some laundry list of how much of a moron your husband is, or keeping some detailed record of how your wife makes you miserable, you choose to forgive. You choose to lean in and say, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to let this be buried because Christ has done the same for me and I want to honor him by living that way with my wife, with my husband. So God designed marriage to put the covenant of Christ and the church on display and we play our parts in God's mission for marriage when we display the grace of the gospel together. Look back at Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Got a, a couple more things I want to point out in the text. And then um, we're, we're nearing, nearing the end here. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Jump down to verse 28 and it says this, And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in these verses, what we see is God blesses man and woman. Before he ever gives them any instructions, any commands, any responsibilities, he blesses them, supplying all the grace that they're going to need for this. And then he gives them primarily two responsibilities. And the first one he gives them is to fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Those are all part of this central idea, fill the earth. 
He wants husbands and wives to have children, to create progeny, to fill his earth with other people who will bear his image. But the second responsibility he gives them is to cultivate and rule the earth. When he says have dominion over and subdue, they are part of this idea of God entrusting man and woman to take his creation and as his image bearers, as his representatives on this earth, to treat, to care for, and to develop this earth into something that honors and glorifies him. So he wants all of humanity to rule over his creation And he wants them to do that as he would do that, carefully, with care. He wants us to imitate what he did in creation. What did God do? If you read Genesis 1, he took what was formless and void and he brought order to it. He took what was not and and made something out of it. He took things that were, were kind of wily and chaotic and he brought something beautiful out of it. Now, we don't have the ability that God has to just speak things into existence. But he has created us in his image. We are also creative, like our creator. And what he wants us to do is take the things that he has given us on this earth and to develop them and to bring those things together to do something beautiful with. And that that takes all kinds of various forms. You don't have to do that in one certain way. People who make art are bringing things together and making an expression of beauty People who are organizers, who are accountants, who take data and pull it together and make it make sense. They're creating order out of chaos. Pretty much every job on the planet is doing these things. So God's plan for us is to not just be here on this earth and kind of waste away our years, not really doing anything with our time here, but to invest what he's given us and the time that we have to do something to bring together things in such a way that they are greater than they were before, that they are a blessing, that they honor God. And it brings us to the question of, in regards to these two responsibilities, when it comes to filling the earth and carefully cultivating and ruling the earth, how do we play these parts? How do we actually engage in this mission that God has for us? Well, the first thing is, this, this is kind of an interesting way to say this, but I think God doesn't just want us to create descendants. He wants us to create disciples. The way that we follow in God's mission when it comes to filling the earth with people is that we don't just create descendants, we create disciples. And the reason why I say that is God's mission for this world is to know him and to worship him. And he doesn't just want people to fill the earth, he wants worshipers to fill the earth. And so, when it comes to being a married couple, God wants us to have kids, but then he also wants us to take those kids and impart his glory to them. To take those kids and teach them the full counsel of God and to stir within them a desire to know and worship our creator. Now regardless, some of us don't have kids, Regardless if we have kids, what God wants all of us to do is to use our lives to be intentional in making disciples, in taking the relationships that he gives us and the opportunities that he gives us with other people and being intentional to bring those people as much as it's up to us, to to take everything that we have. Granted, spiritual growth is definitely the work of God. 
but he calls us to come and enter into those relationships in a way where our desire and our goal is to help people move closer to Jesus so that in the hopes that they would trust him and that they would live for him in such a way that honors God. So whether you have kids or not, whether you're married or not, we all have this responsibility to be on mission for, with God to create worshipers out of the people that are on this earth. If we're married, we also have the, the responsibility of having children. The second thing we saw was that God gave us the responsibility of cultivating and subduing, ruling over his earth. And I believe that we do that, we play our part in God's mission for marriage in that avenue by carefully cultivating and ruling the earth together. We carefully cultivate and rule the earth together. So he has put each one of us on this earth and brought us together in marriage so that we will take care of this world that he's given us and do it in a way that honors him, in a way that he would do it, to do that carefully. It means that we don't just take the things that are on this earth and use and consume them. We put them to use for God's glory. And I have to brag on you guys. One of the things I loved was that picture of the rice farms and the bananas. That is an example of doing this. Taking what God has blessed us with and using that earth to create things that generate wealth that we can turn around and be a blessing with. Wasn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, they're using these grounds that God has given them to grow crops, not so they can just stuff their pockets full of cash, but so that they can build schools and build orphanages and build hospitals, and the gospel can go forth in tangible ways. You see, spirituality isn't just sitting down teaching somebody the Bible. It's meeting their needs. And one of the ways that we cultivate the earth is we think of ways and we're strategic with the raw materials that God has blessed us with whether that be our house, whether that be, you know, talents and abilities that he's placed inside of us, but using those things not for ourselves, but for others and for him. And so God wants us to bear his image on this earth in such a way where we take everything that we are and everything that we have, our cash, our time, our stuff, and we don't hoard it, we don't hold on to it, we give it away to be a blessing to other people. We use it not for ourselves, but for others and for God. That's how we cultivate, and that's how we rule this earth in a way that honors God together. Before we close, I want to return to our story that I began with. So Bob and Mary Mona, I told you that Bob ordained over 50 men for ministry and I told you that, they, they, that he even ordained his youngest son. Well, the youngest son that Bob ordained for ministry, is, his name is Roy. And Roy married Sharon in 1976. And six years later in 1982, they adopted a three-month-old little boy. And in the fall of 1988, that little boy trusted in Jesus. And I am that little boy. My life has been forever changed. Because God in his grace reached down and redeemed my grandpa and my grandmother. And they lived on mission in their marriage, discipling their own kids, such that their son grew up and followed God's call on his life. And then when he got married, 
and they were in a season where they weren't able to fulfill this responsibility to fill the earth because of pregnancy challenges, God connects them in his sovereignty with me. And he brings me into a home, not just any home, but a heritage of a dad who's walking with the Lord and a grandfather who walks with the Lord. And so my life has been radically impacted forever because my grandparents met Jesus and they lived on mission for him. They didn't have to do that. They could have heard all of this. They could have read all of this. And they could have said, you know what, I, kinda, I, don't, I don't know about that. I think I'm going to do something else. But they spent their entire lives. My grandfather was pouring out himself until the day that he died. I remember a time when he was like 78 or something. And we're on our way somewhere, and he has to pop a nitroglycerin pill because he's having like a minor heart thing. And then we get to where we're going, and he's like asking people, do you know Jesus? You know, he just was an evangelist by by birth. It was almost just the way that he was wired. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. God has given you your own calling. He's given you your own abilities, your own gifts. And it doesn't mean that you have to enter full-time ministry to live on mission in your marriage. What it means is that you start to see your marriage through the lens that God wants you to be a picture of who he is, that he wants you to display the grace of the gospel, that he wants you to make disciples, not just descendants, that he wants you to carefully cultivate and rule the earth. That is what it looks like. It takes many different forms, many different avenues, but it's about seeing our marriage as one of the primary ways that we are called to be a blessing to others in such a way that God is glorified. Let's pray.